Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 50. We made it to 50. This week's episode is titled, You Thought Sports Were Supposed to Be Fun? Not anymore, though, is it? Is it? No, not my No, it's not fun anymore. Not even a little bit. Zero fun, sir. All right. You thought this was going to be fun? The Brewers look miserable on opening day. Five hours later, the Bucks get their doors blown off by 40 at home to the Celtics, tightening up the race for the number one seed. The Badgers go on a nine-minute scoring drought, appropriately ending their season in the Final Four, the NIT Final Four. And the Packers and Aaron Rodgers are still at a standoff, but Goody has finally fired back in the media. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit to center, here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's intercepted, and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in. to make a correction right out of the gates. I had a quote or misquoted a movie character at the end of last week's episode where I said inconceivable to something. I don't even remember what the context was. I said inconceivable as the great Doc Brown would say. To my credit, on some subconscious level, my brain knew that was wrong because I paused and then didn't I say, is that Doc Brown? It might not be Doc Brown. And then we moved on. It was not Doc Brown. It's the Sicilian in Princess Bride. This guy right here. Inconceivable. Inconceivable. That's not Doc Brown. This is Doc Brown. Great Scott. Just wanted to make sure we got that on the corrections page here. Can we do that? Should we start doing a corrections page? How long would that segment be at the end of every episode? I was upset about that. I was upset I got that wrong. It doesn't happen all that often, honestly, but that's what radio listeners always remember. I'll never forget two of, well, one of and two of the dumbest things I've ever said on the air. And I've said a lot of dumb things on the air. But you try so hard when you're on the air to say things as accurately as you can, to be funny and self-deprecating. But you want to get your information mostly correct. Try to. 60% of the time it works every time. But we were doing a giveaway once with Scotty McCreary. It was a national giveaway, and it was a cruise. And you could enter whatever, a keyword or whatever it was, and you could enter to win a cruise with Scotty McCreary or something in Malibu. And I was doing a live break on the air about it, and for some reason during that break, I thought Malibu was in Hawaii. Is it stupid now that I say it? Yes. But in that moment, I started talking about how awesome it would be to go on a trip to Hawaii. And we had a bunch of people text in that said, hey, buddy, look at a map. And that is still remembered to this day. I am not joking when I say that break happened probably 13 years ago. I will go on a remote today for B93, or I could go on a remote today or whenever our next remote is, and somebody will say, Malibu. (laughs) People don't forget. People don't forget. That line from Superbad, which is the right movie, right, is accurate. People don't forget. The other one that I had was right at the beginning of Aaron Rodgers being a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. This was before we knew how crazy he really was. This was the tremor in the water in Jurassic Park that should have tipped us off. 
Remember, maybe in 2014 or 2015 in the offseason, in order to get in better shape, he declared that he was done eating dairy, that dairy was bad for him, and that was going to help him get his body in a better state for the upcoming season. This, of course, made headlines in Wisconsin, the dairy state that the MVP head quarterback or the QB1 for the local football team is abstaining from dairy, is swearing off of dairy. I've still got that throat thing. I don't know what's going on there. Anyway, but that was a big story. And I did a break where I thought, or I was out loud thinking, God, he's going to have to give up milk, and he's going to have to give up ice cream and cheese and eggs. And then I said something else after that. And then a lot of people on the text line said, eggs, John, eggs. To which I would defend, in my defense, I would say, I am not the only person that probably lumps eggs into dairy. It didn't take me a second until I read all those texts and thought, God, you're right, they're not dairy. But they sit with everything in the dairy. You get your eggs around the butter and around the milk and the sour cream and all that stuff. It sits there. But I had to think after I said it on the air. I never thought twice about it until I saw the text and I thought, God, you're right. There's That's not dairy. That's not dairy at all. So I could be on the air. I've been on the air on B93 for 16 years. I could be on the air for 16 more. I could win any award and every award in the radio industry. I could transcend your mind with these deep thoughts I have on the air and make you think about worlds in an existential way. But I will always be, for many, many B93 listeners, I will always either be eggs or dairy guy or Malibu guy. You just can't live those down. You can't live it down. But I was very bummed out that I miscorded that so poorly. Okay, where do you want to start? It was an awful day. It was a bad day. It was a no good, no fun, very bad day. We had the Brewers to open the day. Actually, this reminded me of a day in 2015. It wasn't as dramatic because the nightcap didn't mean as much as the nightcap in 2015. But in 2015, I remember doing the morning show, going with my buddies down to Miller Park, and it was Miller Park at the time for opening day. And that night was the Wisconsin Badger National Championship game. And at the beginning of that day, we thought, God, what a day. We get opening day. We get to tailgate. We take a nap. We wake up. It's national title game. What a great day for sports. And we watched the Brewers get their doors blown off. I'm pretty sure it was 12 or 13 to nothing at the hands of the Rockies. Took a nap, and then we all know what happened in the game that shall not be named, which we actually already did name. That was a miserable day. Similar situation yesterday. Granted, that Bucks celtics game didn't have the ramifications of a national title game, obviously, but it had a similar feel where at 7.30, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock yesterday morning, I was thinking, this is going to be a fantastic sports day. We've got opening day at Wrigley Field at 1.20. Take a little snooze, go for a walk, get some dinner, and a massive matchup for the Bucks at Fiserv Forum where they can essentially knock down or lock down the number one seed if they can beat the Celtics in this big Celtics-Bucks rivalry. This is going to be a great day. <laughs> the exact same outcome happened. You want to start with the Brewers or the Bucks? We'll start with the Brewers. It was such a blah game. Wrigley looked blah like it always does early in the year, and it's 45 degrees and windy and cloudy, and the Brewers sent out a lineup that had some differences from last year, but the offense looked the same. It's game one. It's only one game, but the offense looked essentially the same. It looked like it could have been any day from 2022, really, especially August or September of 2022, where they had one threat. The base is loaded in the third inning. Rowdy Telez at the plate, and Rowdy Telez grounds into a double play. That inning could not have played out in a more 2022 fashion. And then also in 2022 storyline, after you're not able to capitalize, the next half inning, Corbin Burns loses his control. He walks a few guys, gives up four runs, right? Did he give up all four in one inning? 
And that was it. And there was just no coming back to that offense. Look, it's one game. We had plenty of this on Brewer Twitter yesterday. As soon as that game went final, we had plenty of Stewie from Family Guy. Here's the opening day, and here's the first pitch, and the season's over. We had a lot of our our pets' heads are falling off. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off! But our pets' heads are not falling off. It's one game. The problem with yesterday in terms of the overreaction on Brewer Twitter, the biggest problem was it just looked like a 2022 game, and it was so easy to make that connection. If they would have lost 6-5 to five or 8-7, to seven and they score some runs, and Yelly hits a home run, and they just kind of come up short, and it looks different than it looked in 2022 – it's probably a bit more palatable because that game looked like any game post-trade deadline in August or September where your offense had one chance to get it done, couldn't get it done. Your pitcher has a razor-thin margin for error and could not walk that type rope the entire time. It just looked exactly like that lackluster August, that lackluster September from 2022, which opened that door for the overreaction on Twitter afterwards and a 4 nothing loss. It was. It was a bummer. Yelly took two walks. You look at the box score, four hits. Bryce Terang got his first hit. That was kind of cool to see. The newcomer, William Contreras, he got a hit, had three strikeouts before that, but he got a hit. Adamas had a hit, but that was it. Not a whole lot going on against Marcus Stroman. And Corbin Burns was uneven, gave up the four runs, three walks, only had three strikeouts, went five innings, had 87 pitches. You know what my favorite overreaction was on Twitter? I'll tell you. I'll tell you, John. And I'm hoping this is tongue-in-cheek, but because of some of the people I see on Twitter, and then you click on their profile to see if they're just joking around, if they have a really dry, sarcastic sense of humor, and you see nothing else on their Twitter timeline that would indicate that that's the case. I saw a tweet that, and I'm paraphrasing here, that essentially accused Corbin Burns of starting to throw the season because he's so mad about not getting paid, the arbitration deal, and essentially saying that he is going to blow up his entire season as a means of retribution <laughs> to get back at Mark Atanasio and the Brewers. Could you imagine that depth of conspiracy? People, Corbin Burns still has to have a really good year. He got his $12 million. He hired Scott Boris. We know he's on his way out, whether it's this year at the deadline or in the offseason or next year at the deadline. He is not going to be a Brewer. And what year will that be then, 2025? He might not be a Brewer the whole year this year. He's probably not going to be a Brewer in 2024, and he's definitely not going to be a Brewer in 2025. That being said, he has not made that money yet. He's making the moves to set things up to make that kind of money by hiring Boris, by setting the table for a future whatever. It's going to end up being 200 or 250 or maybe even more than that million-dollar contract. He's putting all the chess pieces in place, but baseball is unforgiving. If Corbin Burns goes out there and he goes 5-12 and 12 this year with a 6 ERA and he's given up home runs left and right and he looks like the 2019 version of Corbin Burns, that money's going to go way down. It doesn't work in baseball where other teams are going to look. If he has a really bad year this year, other teams this offseason when they're trying to trade for him or maybe if they're looking at him after 2024 – are not going to look past that. They're not going to say, oh, I bet that was an aberration. Let's give him $300 million. He still has to go out there and do the thing that's going to get him the money. He cannot afford to have a bad year, which should give you even more encouragement that things will turn around quickly for him after a lackluster start yesterday, a subpar performance by his standards. But he is going to be given everything he has to have a tremendous year this year because that money is not made yet. That massive seven- or eight-year contract that could be worth upwards of 250 or even $300 million by that point. He has not made that money yet, but I thought that was one of the great that was one of the great tinfoil hat conspiracies that I saw as Brewer Twitter had an utter self destruction meltdown on 
What day is it today? Friday on Thursday after that loss at Wrigley yesterday. Otherwise, Gus Varland made his debut. He had a scoreless inning. I don't know. They just it looked very blah. Have the day off today. Hopefully they can get back on track with Brandon Woodruff on the Hill on Saturday. I will say this about the beginning part of this year, and we've talked about the situation with Burns and Woodruff and Adamas. Those three guys, they're under your control for two more years, and it doesn't look like at this point. I, mean, I guess I'm still holding out hope that they'll re-sign Woodruff. I, there's no way they're going to get Adamas. Adamas is staring down the barrel of what Dansby Swanson got. We saw him have three hits yesterday for the Cubs. He got, what, 260, 275? That's about where Adamas is going to be. They're very comparable, and Adamas hits for more power than Swanson does, so he might be even a little bit higher than that. They're never going to be able to pay him that, and I feel like both sides have not so subtly acknowledged that in the offseason. Maybe they're able to get Woodruff. I was really hoping for all the negativity around Mark Atanasio right now and how cheap the Brewers have been over the course of the last 18 months. You thought if they wanted to expunge some of that, just giving Woodruff his deal, whatever it ends up being, he's not going to be as expensive as Burns. He's older than Burns. He's a year or two further down the line. He just seems like a much more attainable guy. Maybe you throw him 125 or 130 over the course of a four- or five-year deal. If there were ever a time to do that, and we talked about that at the beginning of spring training, if there were ever a time to do that, that time would have been before this year began, just to assuage some of the swelling anger of this Brewer fan base. Look at all those words. Do they fit? I don't know. They were big words, though. I think some of them kind of worked. But since that didn't happen, you have to throw him in that same bucket with Adamas and Burns and assume that they're not going to be here in whatever it is, in two years or half a year or a year and a half or whatever they end up making all these moves and seeing these guys walk out the door. Most baseball seasons, especially early in April and May, if things get off to a slow start, I always preach patience. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. They have a long time to get things together. They just have to get hot in July or August around the trade deadline, hover around the division lead. Things will be fine. It's a little different this year. The first half has a bit more emphasis on it because, as we've discussed, the trade value of Burns, Woodruff, and Adamas is not going to be any higher than it is at the deadline this year. They will still get plenty of prospects if and when they trade them at the end of this year, this upcoming offseason into 2024. But their value where teams could get them not only for the remainder of this year, but for all of next year if that's what they want, or they can acquire them at the deadline this year, and then if things don't work out, they can then trade them and get some of their assets back and recoup some of that by trading them in the offseason or trading at the deadline next year. Their value will not be higher than it is at the deadline this year. For that reason, this year's first half to me is a little more important in that if they go 15-27 and or they're seven or eight games under 500 as they hit the all-star break, and they're 11 games back in the division and seven games back of the wild card, they seriously then do have to explore pulling the plug and trading those guys to the deadline. And as much as that pains me as a person who has money on their over on season win total in a futures bet and to make the playoffs on a futures bet and all that kind of stuff, if they are not off to a good start in the first two months, they really have to have some serious conversations of, pulling the plug on those three guys, getting as many prospects back as you can, and then just rolling with a lot of your young guys and hoping you can find some pitching along the way. For that reason, this year's first half is a little more important than most baseball seasons. And you're always going to have this argument among baseball fans between the it's a marathon, not a sprint, but then you'll have the other people who freak out after one game. They're going to say, well, if you miss the playoffs by one game, losing game one and losing game 162, what's the difference? And there's some validity to that point. But most years, you know you have plenty of time. If you get behind the eight ball early, you have plenty of time to work your way around it and find yourself a decent shot. 
I don't know if that's the case this year. If things are going really bad in mid to late May, those rumblings are going to start really quickly about trading those three guys and maximizing your value there at this year's trade deadline, which pretty much sets this season aflame the way they did last year with the Josh Hader trade. One other quick thing before we get on to the Bucks: the pitch clock is great. It is, it's going to save baseball. It's going to save, not that it needs saving, baseball will be around and would have been around for however many years, decades, hundreds of years. How long are we on this mortal coil? How long until the sun swallows the earth? We're getting closer, it feels like. Baseball would always have been around, but they needed to do something about that game time. And I'm a traditionalist, as I said on Monday's pod. I'm German. I love things being the exact same way every year at the exact same time and the exact same length. But even I had to acknowledge, my wife and I, we left games. We've lost, we've left more games in the last two or three years than at any other point during our time together because if you go and they're going three hours and 15 and three hours, 20, 3.30, sometimes four-hour games, it was too much. And if you watched that game yesterday, if that was your first full game experience with the pitch clock, what was the game? Two hours and 23 minutes? Bad and fast. My buddy Pat texted the group yesterday and said, bad and fast. And you can fill in the joke there. But... It didn't feel like it was going that fast. You know what I mean? The pace still felt like a baseball game. It didn't feel like you were listening to a podcast on 5X. It felt like you were listening to a podcast on 2X where it's faster, but it's not that noticeable. I wouldn't say it seemed like it was a sprint out there as I was watching it, but you look at your watch or the clock after whatever, the fifth or sixth inning, and you say, whoa, it's only been an hour, an hour and ten minutes. That will save baseball for future generations. If you read... The Bill Simmons Book of Basketball, the big book of basketball. Yeah, me and Bill Simmons, just a couple of fellow sports podcasters, colleagues, if you will. Some would call us colleagues. One of my favorite books that I've ever read is the big book of basketball. If you love NBA basketball and you love history and you love countdowns and top 100 players and top 50 moments or playoff spirit series, conspiracy theories, it's a fantastic read. It's a long read. It'll take you the whole summer just about. It's a 1,200-page read. But a portion of that book is dedicated to a guy by the name of Danny Biasoni. And in 1954, Danny Biasoni went to the NBA head of officiating and the board of directors and said, we need to institute a shot clock because these games are dreadfully boring and they're taking forever. And if you watch high school basketball, and I call it, you see this all the time because there is no shot clock in Wisconsin high school basketball. Low-scoring games, and if teams are good at defense and they can get an eight-point lead or six or seven or eight-point lead, they will just start to sit on the clock at the beginning of the second half. And if you're good at not turning the ball over, I've seen possessions in high school basketball that have lasted upwards of a minute and a half of a team just burning clock and laying on it while they have a marginal lead at best. But because they can protect the ball, they can milk the clock and essentially get a win. That was the fear in the NBA at that time. We need to quicken the pace. We need to up the scoring. And he convinced them to institute the 24-second shot clock, which changed the game of basketball forever. That's considered the modern era. It's a similar situation here. I'm sure in 1954, there were plenty of people that said, I can't believe you're changing this game. It's a beautiful game as is. You don't need to touch it. It takes out the strategy. But it changed the game for the better. Same thing is going to happen with the pitch clock. It was a joy. I don't know that any games, I'd have to go back and look at game times. I don't think any of them were much longer than three hours at the most yesterday. And I like the little graphic Bally Sports who, I don't even know, they filed for bankruptcy. They declared bankruptcy. I don't know how much longer they're going to be around. But I did like the presentation where they put the little pitch clock countdown in between the diamond graphic where it showed runners on base and all that kind of stuff. I thought that fit pretty well, too. But that was a a good part of yesterday across baseball. I think more people than not enjoyed the pitch clock and the pace of the game yesterday. 
All right, let's talk about the Bucks. So after the Brewer letdown, I posted on Facebook, at least it was quick, and now we can all focus on the game that truly matters, the Bucks and Celtics at Fiserv Forum tonight. Well, that post aged like spoiled milk. It was so bad. It was a good first six or seven minutes. It was close, back and forth. You saw the conversation on Twitter during the early part of the game of fans saying, all right, this is what we want to see. These two teams are competing at a high level. This feels like a playoff game. And then at the tail end of that first quarter, the Bucks missed three or four shots in a row. The Celtics hit. They took an eight-point first quarter lead. Not the end of the world. It's the NBA. Being down early is essentially being up. Don't worry about it. But then in the second quarter, everything fell apart. The Bucks looked like the, the Badgers. That's how bad the offense looked. They missed, I want to say, 10 or 11 shots in a row. It looked like Badger offense out there. Meanwhile, the Celtics went nuclear napalm and couldn't miss a shot. Shot 70% or 65% in the first half, knocking down threes left and right. And that's where they blow the game open. And the game was lost in the second quarter. The starters played a little bit in that third quarter. Eventually, they got down by 40. And it was embarrassing. It was an embarrassing game. The final was, oh, hold on, let me get the box score here. They lose by 40? Yep. 41, to be precise, John. 140 to 99. So, if you're a Bucks fan, there are several ways to look at this. One thing that you're going to see as a part of the conversation, this goes back to Monday's pod where I talked about explanations versus excuses. I think there's a difference between an explanation and an excuse. You may not think that, and you may think that I'm a dummy for even saying that. That's fine. I've been called way worse today. But I do believe when you look at NBA scheduling, a part of the explanation is that the Bucs were playing their fifth game in seven nights. They were again, just like that Denver game, they were on game two of a back-to-back. Now, I realize there is a portion of the Bucks fan base and the NBA fan base that goes, oh, I feel so bad for the million-dollar athletes, and they have to play a game two days in a row and get paid $10 million for it. I get it. Believe me, that is not lost on me. But there is a difference in terms of fatigue when you've got one team playing five games in seven days and two back-to-backs, and you've got the Celtics who played three games in seven days, and they got to Milwaukee on Wednesday after losing on Tuesday in Washington, they had been sitting in Milwaukee and resting up for 24 hours. If you've got two evenly matched teams, and maybe you want to gripe about that, and that's probably fair at this point. Based on the way things have gone between the Bucs and Celtics, I had a texter this morning when we were talking about the game, texted in and said... I don't know how you feel good about a playoff matchup with this team, John. They lost game six at home last year, got blown out in game seven, got blown out in Boston on Christmas Day, barely beat the Celtics' second string in overtime on Valentine's Day, got blown out with all their starters on the floor last night. That's the last five matchups against the Celtics. I can then understand if when I say two evenly matched teams, you may say, and Celtics fans certainly will say, I don't know if they're two evenly matched teams. One feels pretty better than the other one at this point. But if you've got two evenly matched teams, which record-wise they are, and one has played five games in seven nights and had a day of rest before the game, and one played or one played three games in seven nights and had a day of rest before that game, and one played five games in seven nights and did not have a day of rest before that particular game, that's going to factor in. And the Bucks did look sluggish. That said, you can't lose by 41. I don't care if the Bucs have played seven games in their last seven days and the Celtics played two games in their last seven days and were able to rest three days before last night's game. You can't look as bad as the Bucs looked. You cannot. I can take that excuse only so far. If the Bucs would have lost eight or ten by eight or ten points or by six or seven points and you say, well, they looked tired in the fourth quarter, they played five and seven nights and they're on a back-to-back, to me it's a much more palatable explanation or excuse at that point, even with all the fatigue factored in and all of the scheduling quirks the Bucks have had to deal with, 
you can't lose like that. You just can't no-show. You can't no-show after six minutes. Now, am I saying the Bucks' title hopes are dead? No. Am I saying the Bucks can't beat the Celtics in a seven-game series? No, I am not. I am not encouraged by the way things looked last night. But if you watch the NBA over the years, you know that NBA regular season and NBA playoffs are two totally different things. Drew Holiday talked about this in the postgame where he did concede, we just got our the bleep kicked out of us is what he said. And then they asked him, and they asked Giannis too, does this give you any kind of concern when you look down the road to what feels like an inevitable playoff matchup in the Eastern Conference Finals between the Bucks and Celtics? And Giannis talked about having to have energy and matching that energy and intensity. And Drew essentially said, playoff basketball is a little bit different. Everybody's on the same rest schedule. You can focus in a little bit more on the individual matchups. The pace of play is going to slow down in the playoffs. It always does. It's a different kind of basketball. So that maybe is a little encouraging, too, if you're looking for a silver lining, if you're a Bucks fan. But even with that rest storyline, which I can attribute a little bit of last night's poor play to, you just can't lose by 41. I mean, come on. 140 to 99. Ugly. Real ugly. And it does throw that one seed back into play. We were talking on Monday if the Bucks could have won the game against Boston and essentially gotten that magic number. Well, not essentially. They would have gotten the magic number down to one. One win or one Celtics loss, and the number one seed would have been iced. After that absolute drubbing, I did feel a little like Jim Ross. Somebody stopped the damn match last night. Well, somebody stopped the damn match. Enough's enough. After the drubbing, 140 to 99, the gap is now two games, but it's really one game because the Bucks no longer have the tiebreaker. With that win last night, the Celtics have the season series two to one. If the two teams are tied at the end of the year, the Celtics are going to get the one seed and home court throughout the playoffs. But right now, if you look at the standings, Bucks have a two-game lead. Again, basically a one-game lead. There are five games remaining. If the Bucks go four and one, a five and zero, oh, obviously, or four and one, there's nothing the Celtics can do to track them down. Bucks have the Sixers on Sunday. I don't know what's going on with their injury situation. They have tailed off. It looks like they're pretty much locked into the three seed at this point. Will Embiid and Harden play on Sunday night? I don't know. The Bucks have plenty of rest. They get off tonight, they get off Saturday night, and they don't play until nighttime on Sunday, or kind of a weird 7 p.m. start time on Sunday night. Plenty of rest going into Sunday. But the Bucks have that game against the Sixers. What do we all have here with their final five games? There are some challenges. Again, like we talked about on Monday, I would say the Bucks' strength of schedule, at least right now, is slightly more difficult than the Celtics. The Bucks have Philly at home on Sunday. At Washington, you hope that's a win, but the Celtics will tell you that's not a guarantee. The Celtics lost in Washington on Tuesday by 19 points. At Washington on Tuesday, at home against Chicago on Wednesday, back-to-back. At home against Memphis. Memphis right now the two-seed in the Western Conference, although they might have, and they probably aren't going to have anything to play for in that game on Friday, next Friday night, because they'll be locked into that two-seed. Who knows if they'll play anybody. And the Bucks wrap up the year against one of their nemesis teams at Toronto on Sunday afternoon on April 9th. If you look at the Celtics' remaining schedule, they have Utah at home tonight. So they are back-to-back tonight against the Jazz. I don't know who's all playing for the Jazz. Then they're at Philly on Tuesday. We are big Sixers fans in that one. At home against Toronto on Wednesday. At home against Toronto again on Friday. And at home against Atlanta on Sunday. Toronto and Atlanta are fighting for their playoff lives a bit. Maybe that factors into their matchups with the Celtics and with the Bucks. But the Bucks, we know now, at minimum, if things all are equal and stay the same, have to go 4-1 to get that one seed. Now, after last night's game, if you're a Celtics fan, rightfully so, you're doing the Lombada and saying, we don't even care anymore. If we can go into Milwaukee and do what we did last night in the playoffs, which they did in game six last year too, 
at this point, Celtics fans are saying, do we even really care? We've proven we can win in that arena. Do we care about the one seed? I still feel like you want the one seed, and not just for the home court. One of the primary reasons I want, as a Bucks fan, the one seed is because I want the Celtics to have to play the Sixers in round two. Maybe that takes a little starch out of the Celtics if they have to go six or seven with Philadelphia, which they probably will have to in the second round. That's the bigger part of the equation. Not so much home court throughout the playoffs, which would be great, but you don't want to be the Bucks as the two seed, have to play the Heat, it looks like, as the seven seed, another nemesis team, then play the Sixers, then play the Celtics. That's a much more brutal road. You want the one seed for the home court, but more importantly, to avoid that Heat matchup in round one, to play a team like the Bulls or the Hawks or some team like that, then probably play the Cavs in the second round and not have to deal with the Sixers. Hopefully you can win that series in five or six and sit back for two or three days and watch the Celtics and Sixers beat each other up. That's the bigger part of wanting the one seed. But now the Bucks have put the pressure on themselves. If they win last night, there's almost no pressure the rest of the way. They win one more game, and you can rest guys for as long as you want to. Now it ramps up again. Again, Philly at Pfizer Forum on the way on Sunday. What else is on the rundown list here? Oh, we can talk a little bit about Goody. At the at the head coach GM meeting, the annual NFL head coach GM meeting, which produces to me one of the funnier pictures in sports, every year they do this, and every year they do basically a class photo of the NFL head coaches. I believe they do one of the GMs as well. The GM one isn't as awkward because GMs, more often than not, are wearing formal clothes at all times. You almost always see them in a suit or something more formal. NFL head coaches are not that way. I would say the dress attire of NFL head coaches and podcasters and radio hosts is pretty similar. Something, what was the what was the homeless fashion line in the movie Zoolander, Derelict? It's very similar. Very scrubby, same hoodies, same jeans for four or five years, Crocs, things like that, flip-flops. But when they get this photo, they have to kind of look semi-formal, and they just all look so uncomfortable. They're staring into the sun. They're sweating. They're uncomfortably close to each other. You've got guys jockeying for leg position and groin room, as you know, if you're if you're a dude listening, trying to spread those legs out a little bit and own the space on each side of you. It is the most unintentionally funny photo that I think I see every year. But coming out of that, we finally had the Goody side of the Aaron Rodgers story. We've heard the Aaron Rodgers side through Pat McAfee. Aaron Rodgers' claim, just to reset in a second, his claim is the Packers wanted him back at the end of the year. They had the one meeting at the end of the year. Packers said they wanted him back. Take his time. He goes and does the darkness retreat two months later. He comes out of the darkness retreat, and he finds his one cell of service in the darkness retreat lobby, and he finds out the Packers want to trade him, and something has changed, and they want to get rid of him. That's the Aaron Rodgers story. Here's the Goody story. The last couple months kind of transpired. Yeah, I didn't really take his comments like that, and it's certainly not true. I mean, I think, you know, as we got out of the offseason or after the season, and we, we had a good conversation, um, and then, you know, we'll, we're going to have some follow-up conversations. And our inability to reach him or for him to respond in any way, I think at that point, then we just kind of had to, we had to, I had to do my job and kind of reach out and understanding that a trade could be possible uh, and see who was interested, but that shopping was never really part of that. So, so when you gave him that contract extension, you've said publicly your intention was for him to not just play last season, to play beyond that. At what point did it shift to, okay, we need to move on? Yeah, I think so. I think obviously it was a disappointing season, right? And you come out of the season, you have a lot of conversations not only with Aaron, but with uh, the rest of the team, coaches, and everybody. And as you go through that process, you kind of get an idea of where you're going to move to, you know, as a team, how you're going to go forward. 
And I think I was really looking forward to the conversations with Aaron to see how he fit into that. Uh, those never transpired. So, I, you know, there, there came a time where we kind of had to we had to make some you know decisions. So we went through his representatives to try to kind of talk to him where we were going with our team. And at that point, um, you know, they informed us they would like to, to be traded to the Jets. Okay, so the truth, obviously, is somewhere in between because somebody is lying. Aaron Rodgers, again, his claim is that end of the year meeting, they both seem to agree on that. They both seem to agree. They had their exit interview at the end of the year, and they both seem to say or corroborate that the Packers said, take your time, not two months, but take some time and let us know what you want to do. And Rodgers seemed to think he had some time to figure out what he wants to do. Then there's a little ambiguity where Rodgers basically hints that the Packers did not reach out to him until he found out after his darkness treat they wanted to trade him. Whereas Goody is saying that they did try to contact him. He ghosted him. He Irish goodbyed him. He didn't answer any phone calls. Or maybe it was a texting situation. Is it possible that Aaron Rodgers is the android in an iPhone group text with Aaron Rodgers, Brian Gutekunst, Russ Ball, and Matt LaFleur? And if you've ever been in one of those group texts, you know sometimes the texts come in out of order. And sometimes you get a meme two days later connected to a message that came a week before. And it's hard to piece the whole thing together. Speaking from a hypothetical situation, not a personal experience. Maybe that's a part. Maybe that's a part of the problem. Maybe Aaron Rodgers, he would be a green text bubble Android guy, wouldn't he? He would be. He absolutely would be. And maybe that's a part of the miscommunication. They were sending him messages, they were texting him, but they weren't going through because he had two different types of phones in the group text. Aaron Rodgers would be the kind of guy who would get some cell phone that's like locally sourced from the Swiss Alps. It's handmade by an 82-year-old watchmaker, and it's all better for the environment. But he is saying that they did not contact him. The Packers, clearly there, Goody is saying, we did try to contact him, and we got no response. And at some point, his big quote was, or the quote you saw making its way around social media was, I have to do my job, and that's when they started to explore the trade. I blogged about this on whatever day it was, Tuesday or Wednesday. Here's what I think happened, and each side has their perspective. I think they met at the end of the year. Everybody has an exit interview. Aaron Rodgers is no different. And I think Aaron Rodgers wanted some type of commitment from the Packers that his guys were coming back. And Rodgers has been on record as saying at this stage in his career, he wants to play with as many guys that he is friends with and enjoys playing with. Not that he doesn't like the younger players, but this is very similar to the Favre storyline in 2008 where there's a disconnect at some point when you're the guy who's 40 and you've got rookies coming in who are 22 and 23 years old. There's just a societal disconnect between those two age groups at any level, not just in football. My belief is Rodgers wanted some type of commitment from the Packers that Randall Cobb could come back, that they're going to find the money to re-sign Mason Crosby. More on that in a second. That Bakhtiari is going to get a restructure, that they're going to go after Tunyon, that they're going to sign Lazard. And my feeling is that Brian Gutekunst was very non-committal, and rightfully so because he knows the cap. Russ Ball knows the cap. There was going to be no way they could bring all of those guys back. And if you're a GM, why would you want to? The team just went 8-9 and nine after a couple of playoff runs that ended well short of where, well, not well short of where they wanted to be, but the dramatic ending in 2020 and then the special teams debacle in 2021 and then an 8-9 and nine season with not making the playoffs and losing a game that could have gotten you into the playoffs as the finale to this past year. When that's the progression or the degression, recession, why would you bring all of those guys back for a team that's trending in the wrong direction? NFC Championship game loss, divisional round loss, not making the playoffs. 
I believe then Brian Gutekunst was very noncommittal about that, and maybe understandably so. Aaron Rodgers, who already has some bitter feelings towards the Packers about how they treat their veterans, which I don't really know what he wants there. You know what I mean? I know that's a narrative that Jermichael Finley is thrown out there, that Greg Jennings is thrown out there, that Rodgers is now thrown out there, that the Packers don't treat their veterans the right way on the way out. What do you want them to do? Do you want them to give them a gift bag like Derek Jeter after a one-night stand? You want to get a fruit basket? It's a business. It's a dirty business in some ways. Jordy Nelson, I'm sure, was another guy that Rodgers wasn't happy about, and a lot of Packers fans weren't either when they found out that they offered him, what, one year, $2 million, or some really small offer to come back before he eventually went to Oakland. But I don't know what you want the Packer hierarchy to do. How can they soften that blow for these longtime players who feel invested in the franchise, but clearly the Packers don't have or don't want to spend the money on the tail end of their career? How do you make that a softer fall? I don't really understand. But that's a part of it, too. So Aaron Rodgers leaves that meeting. He doesn't feel good about the commitment level to sign his friends. He doesn't already like the way that some of his former friends and veteran players have been treated on their way out. And he's a little in a huff, shall we say. He is, what did Mark Murphy call him a few years ago, a complicated fella. And he didn't like that. And I think Rodgers walks away from that meeting and then probably purposefully in some ways doesn't communicate a whole lot in the following two months. And maybe his expectation is that he can just come back whenever, or maybe he thinks exactly what played out is going to play out. Maybe he thinks, all right, if I don't answer these calls for two months, eventually they're going to have to trade me. Maybe that's a part of it. Maybe he is playing chess a little bit. But I think that's essentially what happened. They both walked away from that meeting, and Rodgers was not happy, and the Packers felt like their hands were tied, and they have to go in a different direction for several of those positions because they just don't have the money to commit to those veterans. And that's where the schism deepened. It was already there because of the love draft pick, and I don't know that Gutekunst and Rodgers have been super friendly ever since then or even before then, but that's where the schism widened. And now here we are, and the standoff continues. But I think that's essentially what happened. I just don't think that exit interview went the way either side wanted it to go, and there were some rumors of that and they have not been able to patch things up. I did get a text in that asked me at this point, as it's going to be April tomorrow, and the draft is the final weekend in April, and there still doesn't seem to be anything close to happening in terms of a trade. I did have somebody text and say, what percentage chance would you put on Aaron Rodgers coming back at this point? Boy, 1%, 2%. I would love it if it happened because then I would have been right. I would have been right the whole time. I could play the I don't want to be the guy that told you so, but I told you so clip. No, there's no way. But it is. I can understand the longer that this goes on with no resolution, I can understand why Packers fans are starting to think, well, (laughs) he's still on the team in April. And if you get past that draft day timeline where the draft comes and goes and nothing has happened, then you're definitely looking at nothing happening until June 1st so the Packers can take advantage of that lower cap hit. And then once you get past June 1st, you know what I mean? Your training camp is four weeks away. I can sort of understand that thinking because this has been going on for so long. But that was the audio coming out of the GM and head coaches meetings this week that kind of gives the Packer hierarchy or the GM side of the story after we heard the Rodgers-McAfee side of the story. I don't know when Rodgers is going to be on McAfee next. I assume he's going to want to combat whatever Goody said there. If I know Aaron Rodgers the way I think we know Aaron Rodgers. I don't know that he wants to have that out there. You know he wants to have the final word, and you know he wants to direct the narrative. At some point, I would guess he'll hop back on McAfee. But we are to a point now where it's April tomorrow, and we still haven't had a whole lot of movement. I did see a trade proposal, not an, nothing official, but I just saw a hypothetical thrown out by a Packer beat reporter. I forget which one. I wouldn't mind giving him credit. I just can't remember which one. 
it's been a big topic of do the Packers, the Packers want the 13th overall pick this year. The Jets don't want to give it to them. The Jets have the 13th pick, and they have two second-round picks after they traded whatever wide receiver. They now have two second-round picks. It feels pretty likely that they're offering the Packers a second-round pick and maybe a conditional pick next year, depending on Rodgers' performance. I saw somebody post, would you take this? Would you take swapping the 13th and 15th? Packers give the Jets the 15th overall pick and take the Jets 13th, so they move up two spots. Would you take that swap and their first second rounder this year for Rodgers? I would say yes. Wouldn't you? Just to end this at this point, you move up two spots in the first round. It's not a ton, but there's some value there, and you get the second rounder, so now you have two second rounders and the 13th overall pick instead of the 15th overall pick. I think I'd take that. That hypothetical that was thrown out there, I think I'd, if I were Goody, I would take that. Well, we just wait for that to get resolved. It's also Final Four weekend. Or that Badger NIT run. <laughs> so poetic. Nine minute scoreless drought. They were up 54 to 46 with 9.06 left and didn't score another point. They've got work to do in the transfer portal. <laughs> work to do there. Greg Gard will get another year, I think. McIntosh has been such a wild card in that regard where you can tell he's trying to put his stamp on everything and people are so hyped now for Badger football that I'm sure. Fans, and he probably wants the same for Badger basketball, but I think you have to give Guard one more year. He's got one year to figure it out. Another lackluster, a mediocre year, and that will probably do it. I'm betting he gets one year. But he's got work to do in the transfer portal because I don't know that this year's recruiting class didn't have much of an impact outside of a Siegen, and I don't know that next year's recruiting class, from what I've seen, is going to have an impact player right away. We shall see. The Badgers don't play their freshmen a whole lot anyway. But they're going to have to look in the transfer portal for something. An impact shooter, a wing shooter, a big man to back up Steven Crow with a little more muscle to him maybe. They've got to find a couple guys in the transfer portal. Final four this weekend, a 5.09 tip time on Saturday, Florida Atlantic and San Diego State. And then a 7.49 tip time between Miami and UConn. I think UConn's going to take the whole thing. They've blown everybody out. And they've been so good for most of the most of the regular season. The Marquette beat them in the Big East tournament, of course. They were formerly ranked number one in the country for many weeks at the beginning of the year. They seem to now be playing like a team that would justify that early season number one ranking. I mean, they're blowing people out by 15, 20 points every round. I think UConn's going to take the whole thing. I'll go with, I guess I'll go with the San Diego State-UConn Final Four. I'm rooting for Florida Atlantic. We all should be. It would be just wild for Florida Atlantic to win the national championship. My guess is it'll be San Diego State and UConn with UConn winning it all. And I got to be honest, the way UConn's playing, I think UConn double-digit winner against Miami and double-digit winner in the title game then against San Diego State. Now watch, they'll be out. <laughs> they'll lose by 15 to Miami. But just the way UConn is trending and the way they're playing, if they play anywhere close to how they've looked so far in the NCAA tournament, it's going to be very difficult for either Miami or the winner of Florida Atlantic, San Diego State, to beat them. That's coming up this weekend, too. And it's WrestleMania weekend, big weekend. We'll come back on Monday. We will have the national championship game ironed out. Maybe we'll have progress on a Packer trade. We'll wrap up the first full weekend for the Brewers. Woodruff and Lauer going back-to-back at Wrigley with 120 start times on Saturday and Sunday. And we'll be having a recap of Buck Sixers Sunday night primetime. A lot more important now with that loss to Boston on Thursday. We'll chat with you then. Have a good weekend. <laughs>